everybody here. Good morning to everybody. Um, this morning I have an important question to ask about the Christian faith. Does anyone see anything morally wrong with having paneled walls in your home? I didn't think, I didn't really guess that somebody would say yes there, but here's a follow-up question to that. Why do you think God rebuked his people for living in paneled houses? And not only did he rebuke his people for that, but then he punished them pretty severely with food shortages, you know, lack of rain, a lack of warm clothing, uh, insufficient living wages, basically a shortage of all the necessities. He punished them, and he talked about panels in their houses, or paneled houses. Now, that does seem kind of hard to believe, doesn't it? And you might like to know what I'm referring to, but I'm referring to the prophetic book of Haggai. It's in the Old Testament, it's actually three books from Matthew, you know, the, the third to the last book of the Old Testament. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai was a prophet of God, and he was the prophet to the Jews who returned from Babylon. You know, the Jews were taken out of their land, uh, and the Jews in the southern part of Israel taken out of Jerusalem and Judah when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem and, and carried them over, you know, out to Babylon, <clears throat> which is uh, around, you know, the near the country of Iraq. And they conquered them in 605 B.C. under the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, who built a powerful empire. Well, eventually the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians who kind of joined together to build an army and to build a, 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 another empire. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a proclamation in 538 B.C. And I'm going to read that. It'll be on the screen. The first four verses of Ezra, but we won't be in the book of Ezra. I'm just reading the proclamation here. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what, king, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, now this is a pagan king, <clears throat> the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Quite a statement, isn't it? Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. <clears throat> and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So, 
in 538 BC, we're approximately 70 years from the time Jerusalem was conquered and carried off to Babylon, and it was prophesied that it would be 70 years they would be out of the land. They had sinned so much against God, and God warned them that if they sinned to a certain extent, they would be taken out of their land, which was God's gift to them. And the reason God put them there was because the people who had lived there had sinned so much that God threw them out of the land. And so God moved Cyrus, the king of Persia, to send his people back to their homeland. They had served God, so they had served the time that God had set for them to remain in exile. But do you remember what basically was stated as the main purpose in this proclamation for sending the Israelites back to the land. He said that God had appointed him, Cyrus said God had appointed him <clears throat> to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. So the rebuilding of the temple was a prominent part of God's plan for his people as they returned from their captivity. That's one of the main reasons they were going. And so now we're moving from 538 B.C. to 520 B.C., 18 years later, and many Israelites now have moved back and have been living in Jerusalem and Judah since that proclamation, that decree. And now I invite you to follow along as I read from Haggai, chapter 1, in the first six verses. <clears throat> it says, In the second year of King Darius, some people pronounce it Darius, <clears throat> and see, Darius was the king of uh, Persia, whereas Cyrus, well, Cyrus is the king of Persia, Darius is the king of the Medes. So, we're talking about Darius reigning now. In his second year, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So the word of the Lord is coming through the prophet Haggai to the governor and to the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people say, God's quoting the, the attitude of the people and in, in their words, the people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Think this through. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. <clears throat> Haggai is calling these people to account, isn't he? They have, re they have turned away from rebuilding the temple. Now, as we read in Ezra, Nehemiah, and other accounts, 
we know that when they got back to the land, they did lay the foundation for the temple, but then their neighbor enemies gave them so much trouble and so much oppression that they stopped rebuilding. But here now they are 16 years later <clears throat> since they finished the foundation and they haven't gotten back to building the temple. Yet, if we go back and see in verse 2, two through 4, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what we've already read. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Hey, it isn't time for that yet. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So they had time to build other things, didn't they? Namely their own houses. But they weren't just building houses for themselves. They were building sort of upscale homes. That's what the paneled houses. The Lord is, is rebuking them for building even nice homes for themselves, but leaving the temple in ruins. Not that there's anything wrong with paneling, right? But it's that they were, put, they were going big time on their own houses while totally neglecting the Lord's. It laid in ruins, probably a big uh, heaps of rubble. And remember Cyrus's proclamation. He said, God has called me to send the Israelites back to rebuild the temple. So it was a very important point of their return, was to rebuild the temple. And of course, they did face some resistance, as we said, but, you know, it's been 16 years 16 years since they laid the foundation. So God tells them through Haggai, he says, consider this carefully. Think about this. Just think back. Your harvests have been puny. When you eat and drink, you never feel full. Your clothes don't keep you warm. Your wages aren't paying your bills. Are you putting two and two together yet? And now look what God tells them in verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He says this two or three times in this passage, <clears throat> in the whole passage. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. It's an action of honor. It's a assignment of honor. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. <clears throat> Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. Those are three basic crops that uh, the Israelites were able to produce. And everything else in the ground, everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. <clears throat> 
think through this carefully, he says. And you know, sometimes we can get going and not think through things carefully, can't we? Because you just get caught up in whatever's happening and you just get involved and your mind's all taken into it and you forget to think about how does this fit in with what God is doing? And God tells them, get busy. Start taking the first steps. Go to the mountains and get the timber. Just take step one. That's good advice, isn't it? When you're afraid of the whole project, just take step one. And he was saying, you know, you should have recognized something. You should have picked up some clues because nothing you were doing was, doing, was giving you enough. You know, the, the heavens withheld the, the dew. The crops were puny. The, you were facing droughts. Nothing was working for you. Didn't that click something in your minds? And he says, now why did I do that? Because you were all into building your own houses while totally neglecting mine. And that was dishonoring to me. So by leaving the house of God in ruins, and then for years totally neglecting it as a heap of rubble, but at the same time building sort of like high-class homes for themselves, they were showing God dishonor. Like he wasn't important. Like he didn't deserve their respect. <clears throat> like it didn't matter how they treated him or whether they were thankful to him. And he said, I tried to get your attention by holding back the blessings, but you still didn't get it. That's called spiritual dullness. And it's called self-absorption and unappreciative. Now, <clears throat> before we move on to the end of the passage, <clears throat> is this saying that none of us should work on our homes until our church building is big and glorious and magnificent, showing the magnificence of our God? Well, my answer to that is, I hope not. Because if that's true, some of you have some answering to do. <laughs> including my wife, because she's the one that wanted to do our house. <clears throat> Actually, I have seen preachers use passages like this in Nehemiah and Ezra, back in Nehemiah and Ezra, in order to promote a church building project in order to raise the funds for a church building project. But there are problems with trying to compare or equate a New Testament church meeting place with the Jewish temple. You know, when God said that he withheld the rain and the crops and caused them to suffer shortages, when he said, remember, you look back, you see everything was just not enough, he was actually referring to the Old Testament law of Moses. Because in the Old Testament law of Moses, it was laid out clearly. If you don't do this, if you don't honor me, if you turn away from me, if you go to idols, I will hold back the rain. I will, you know, not give you the morning dew. You, you, and it goes into great detail of what's going to happen if they don't honor God. 
And then it goes into great detail what will happen if they do honor God and how blessed they will be and how prosperous they will be. So he was referring to the blessings and cursings detailed in the law of Moses for the nation of Israel. They were under that Old Testament covenant of Moses. And it even included the fact that if they went to so far in their sin, he would take them out of their land, this beautiful land that he had given them. And eventually that would include the temple as they built the temple. And the reason they were taken out of the land of Israel, eventually, ultimately, was because they had sinned so greatly against the Lord. And one reason they were taken out for a certain amount of time was to give the land rest because they were not observing the Sabbaths for the land. So our church meeting places are not New Testament temples. You know, we're under a whole different system. We're under a different covenant, the New Covenant. And there's really no instructions given in the New Testament about how to build a church building or <clears throat> what it should be made of, or how big it should be, the places where we meet. And we see in the New Testament, we see how the early disciples, they first met in the temple. You know, they would group together in the temple. And then they were meeting in homes, they were meeting in an upper room. Uh, outside of the land of Israel, Paul taught at the school of Tyrannus, uh, the focus isn't on meeting places at all. <clears throat> and today we see that practice continuing, don't we? I mean, Christians around the world meet in all kinds of different structures and places and buildings from great cathedrals that kind of do talk, uh, kind of show the glory of God to small country churches, to storefronts, to homes to schools, to theaters. And some meet in hidden places because people are looking for them to disrupt their meetings or even torture them and kill them and take them to jail. So it's not the meeting place, is it, in the New Testament? <clears throat> and the key principle here is that these Israelites who were so privileged to be the ones whom God was bringing back to return them from their captivity, they ended up dishonoring God in the very thing that he wanted them to do. And to him, that was disrespect. They allowed his temple to lie in ruins. And that showed others what they thought of him. When one of the primary objects of their return was to rebuild the temple, his, his you know, temples are palaces for God for a God. And even today, you know, we see temples in different lands and, and that's where people go to worship their gods. And so temples have always been kind of like a God's palace, like a king has his palace because gods are often seen as kings. So what happened to them? They returned and they laid the foundation and that's good. But when they were deterred by the opposition, they stopped. And maybe that's not so bad, but they just never returned to it. 
They never returned to the main mission. God freed them from their captivity to go back and rebuild the temple. So <clears throat> they weren't carrying out God's mission for them. They weren't thankful to him. They just let everything else come in their, in their lives, and that's something that can happen, isn't it? I mean, we have so many things here that take up our time and our interests and, and our uh, attention that sometimes we can just start growing apathetic toward the Lord. And you know, the reason that the, Israel's enemies opposed them building the temple, why, why would they oppose it? Well, because it would be a great encouragement to them. They didn't want that temple built. They knew it would make a difference. They saw how important it was for the Israelites to rebuild that temple, and they stopped them from doing it. And then the Israelites just kind of let it go. So the way that this passage relates to us <clears throat> is not that the Old Testament temple equals the New Testament church building. But our takeaway is, are the things that we do under the new covenant as followers of Christ, are they honoring or dishonoring to God? Because, you know, the Israelites allowing the temple to lie in ruins, especially while they were building nice homes for themselves, was very, very dishonoring to God. So as we interact with our world as followers of Christ in the New Covenant, as being one with Christ, do people see us as those who honor Christ? Might someone say, wow, that person is a true Christian? Or might someone say, Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you say you were a Christian? What do, others, what do our lives tell others about our respect for God and his word? <clears throat> you know, it's probably not real difficult to imagine what kinds of things cause people to think of us as true Christians versus what kinds of things lead them to think that we're not really serious about our faith or that Christ isn't real for us. And of course, we could just name some basic things. And you might think, is this my, uh, <clears throat> is this my reputation? If we act selfishly, or if we're stingy, or if we're deceitful, or lazy, or irresponsible, or rude, or ill-mannered, then we're really not honoring God, are we? It's kind of like the rubble of the temple. Yet if people know us as thoughtful and kind and helpful and generous and encouraging, willing to listen, as honest, as humble, as truly interested in others, then we will have that reputation that honors God. So, does our reputation bring honor or dishonor to God? <clears throat> now, just before we go to our final verses, 
Do you remember a letter in the New Testament that speaks of a temple? The temple that uh, pertains to the New Covenant. The covenant that we Christians are under with God. You know, this covenant we're under isn't built around the law of Moses. This covenant is built around, it's all about the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Christ that we enter into by faith. We enter into the covenant by faith that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. And we become one with Christ when we trust in him for our salvation. <clears throat> that is our covenant. But did you know this covenant also uh, involves a temple? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll recognize it as we read it. Paul says in 6.18, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, why is that so important? Next verse. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <clears throat> if we sin sexually or get involved in sexual immorality... We are actually defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit indwells us. If we have turned to Christ for forgiveness, then he lives inside of us and our bodies become his temple. We are the New Testament temples of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if then, as a Christian, we engage in sexual immorality, which is sexual activity outside of a marriage bond, then we defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, we bring dishonor to God. Paul says we don't own ourselves. God purchased us at a price. He paid for us that was the redemption. Redemption is being bought out of the slave market. So he paid the price to bring us out of the slave market of sin through the death of his son, which was a horrible, excruciating, humiliating death. Therefore, Paul says, we should honor God with our bodies. We don't want our temple to lay in ruins, do we? We don't want people to look at our temple and just, just say, and say they don't care about their God. So really what it boils down to is that God owns our bodies if we are believers. You know, we accepted his offer of salvation if we are a believer. He purchased our lives from destruction, and now he owns us. <clears throat> And we need to care for his temple. So we must turn away from all sexual immorality. Any sexual activity 
with anyone other than the one we're married to. And you know, I know for a lot of people today, that just seems so outdated and so limiting and so prudish. But you know, it was outdated back in Paul's day. In many cultures in Paul's day, men married wives is even a saying that, you know, I've seen a number of times, <clears throat> a quote from back then. Men married wives to raise their children, and then they had concubines for their times of pleasure, and even visited prostitutes in the temple. You know, they had temples that where the prostitutes worked at the temple and part of the religious practices of those pagans were to go to the temple and engage in religious activities that way. So Paul brings this message to first century Corinthians. This message was as strange to them or even more strange than bringing it to our 21st century America. But we're bringing honor to God's temple, our bodies, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know, this would also go beyond, <clears throat> uh, you know, who we're with. It's also what we see online, or what we see in the theater, or what we watch at home or the books and magazines we look into, you know, it all affects the temple of God. And you know, I worked at a city swimming pool for six summers from age 16 through 21. And I remember one time, it was one of my first years when I was, I was a guard for three years and a manager, acting manager for three years. But I remember one guy bringing in a little thing of scripture that somebody had given him. To all of us, we were just standing around. And it said, <clears throat> anyone who looks upon a woman to lust has committed adultery. And we were all standing there going, what? <laughs> I mean, here we were at a swimming pool, you know. Everybody in bathing suits. And... I didn't know the Bible or anything. I wasn't a Christian. And so we were all standing there going, okay, because that was just like all the time, every time, every day. And <clears throat> this one guy finally spoke up. He was, the, he was the older, the manager at that time. He said, I was just admiring her hair. So we all said, we'll, we'll use that. But then, you know, years later, right before I turned 22, a friend from high school told me about Jesus, and he wanted me to come by and visit the Bible college he was going to. And I thought, Bible college? What's a Bible college? What can you do with a Bible college? I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what, what, we, what would happen at a Bible college. So um, he eventually led me to the Lord, and it took like a year and a half. And then he told me he wanted me to stop by his school at the Bible college in Kansas City. <clears throat> 
So I thought to myself, I was just a brand new Christian, and I thought, uh, I really don't want to go to a, a Bible college yet. I'm, that would be kind of weird, you know, just to see all those Christians all in one place. And, and so, you know, seeing people saying praise the Lord and everything, I just wasn't there yet. So I thought, no, nah, I won't go. But I was going to a class at a nearby college, and the teacher didn't show up. So I just said, okay, I'll, I'll stop by. So I stopped by, and I found my friend, and he started introducing me to people. It was a small college, and the, the atmosphere was so totally different because I'd been through college already, and the atmosphere there was just so amazingly different, and the people were so kind, and it was so... It just wasn't the, you know, place where you went around chasing everybody and stuff like that. It was just that people were really interested in you and kind and helping you grow toward the Lord. So it was an amazing difference for me to be in that atmosphere. And I got to meet the president and, the, and I got to meet the chaplain of the school and he asked me about myself, and he'd already heard because my friend had told him. <clears throat> and he said, well, let me give you this advice. Don't date anybody. <laughs> I didn't take that advice, did I? But actually, he just meant right away, don't date anybody because you're not ready for that yet. You're just a new Christian. and You've got to learn how to think in Christian ways. So... It was such a help for me to get into that Christian circle, you know, instead of, as a new Christian, continuing on with what, you know, just with everybody I was used to being with and in the atmosphere I was used to being in, to get into this Christian circle. And I started getting involved in Bible studies and visiting that college, and, and it just helped so much to get my focus in the right direction. So it's hard in our society, you know, to keep your temple holy to God. There's just so much there, and there's so many temptations and so many opportunities to do the wrong thing. But you have to just take yourself to the right place and be with the right people and go to the right events and to, to keep yourself clean and to keep yourself focused on the Lord. But now we want to end on a, a, a good note, a great note, the last verses. It's in verses 12 through 15 of Haggai. <clears throat> he says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, Joshua, son of Zodak, Josedak, the high priest, so we got the governor and the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. So here's what the Lord said when they responded in a good way. I am with you, declares the Lord. So you see, if you commit to the Lord, he's with you. So the Lord stirred up, and look what he does now. 
The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Don't you love happy endings? But I see a real important pattern here in what we just read. Haggai brings this strong message, a message of rebuke to the people. And you know, when you read in the Bible of messages of rebuke coming to the people through prophets or seers, oftentimes it doesn't turn out well for the, for the prophet. Many times they get killed. But Haggai brings this rebuke to his people and in the reverent fear of God, they turn, they obey, they listen. Then Haggai comes back with the message from God in verse 13, I am with you. That means I'm going to help you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to walk through this with you. He's with them in a special way. He's going to act on their behalf. He will be working with them. They won't be alone. And remember, God had been holding back from them because of their dishonoring him. You know, with the rain, the dew, the clothes, the wages. Now, because of their positive response to his message, he is saying that he is going to be right there with them, helping them, guiding them. And how is that? It says... Skip down to about the middle. He talked to the, the governor, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the governor, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they, became, they came and began to work on the house of God. So they took the first step, then God stepped in, and then he stirred up their spirits. God is always waiting for us to respond to him. He's always waiting for us to get that positive response. The rebuke of God comes to the prophet Haggai. The people humble themselves. They choose to revere the Lord. They exalt God. They humble themselves. And God moves in a stirring of their spirits. They all join in rebuilding the temple, and everyone benefits. So you see, when we fight for our own will against God's will, thinking maybe we deserve something, it just leads to trouble. And we see here the gigantic difference between stubborn resistance to God and humble obedience. Resistance leads to suffering and lack and loss, whereas humble obedience leads to God's extra help and active presence. So much of what we receive from the Lord really starts with a humble, willing reverence from us. And at that point, God moves in and helps and enhances and gives more 
more motivation and more help. And as far as giving honor to God by respecting his temple, we just always need to keep in mind that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. We want to, we want to respect the temple of God. So let us consider carefully how we treat God's temple. Let's treat it with honor and respect. Let's don't dishonor our Lord. And let's enjoy his full presence in our lives. Let's pray.